Part 2 of The Life of God and the Soul of Man by Henry Schugel. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. On the Excellency of Religion and Divine Love. And now, my dear friend, having discovered the nature of true religion, before I proceed any further, it will not perhaps be unfit to fix our meditations a little on the excellency and advantages of it, that we may be excited to the more vigorous and diligent prosecution of those methods whereby we may attain so great a felicity. But alas, what word shall we find to express that inward satisfaction, those hidden pleasures, which can never be rightly understood but by those holy souls that feel them? A stranger intermeddleth not with their joys. Holiness is the right temper, the vigorous and healthful constitution of the soul. Its faculties had formerly been enfeebled and disordered, so that they could not exercise their natural functions. It had wearied itself with endless tossings and rollings, and was never able to find any rest. Now that distemper being removed, it feels itself well. There is due harmony in its faculties, and a sprightly vigor possesseth every part. The understanding can discern what is good, and the will can cleave to it. The affections are not tied to the motions of sense and the influence of external objects, but they are stirred by more divine impressions, are touched by a sense of invisible things. Let us descend, if you please, into a nearer and more particular view of religion in those several branches of which were named before. Let us consider that love and affection wherewith holy souls are united to God, that we may see what excellency and felicity is involved in it. Love is that powerful and prevalent passion by which all the faculties and inclinations of the soul are determined, and on which both its perfection and happiness depend. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. He who loveth mean and sordid things doth thereby become base and vile, but a noble and well-placed affection doth advance and improve the spirit into a conformity with the perfections which it loves. The images of these do frequently present themselves unto the mind, and by a secret force and energy insinuate into the very constitution of the soul, and mold and fashion it unto their own likeness. Hence we may see how easily lovers or friends do slide into the imitation of the persons whom they affect, and how, even before they are aware, they begin to resemble them, not only in the more considerable instances of their deportment, but also in their voice and gesture, and that which we call their main or air, and certainly we should as well transcribe the virtues and inward beauties of the soul if they were the object and motive of our love. But now, as all the creatures we converse with have their mixture and alloy, we are always in hazard to be sullied and corrupted by placing our affections on them. Passion doth easily blind our eyes, so that we first approve and then imitate the things that are blamable in them. The true way to improve and ennoble our souls is by fixing our love on the divine perfections, that we may have them always before us, and derive an impression of them on ourselves, and, beholding with open face as in a glass the glory of the Lord, we may be changed into the same image from glory to glory. He who with a generous and holy ambition hath raised his eyes toward that uncreated beauty and goodness and fixed his affection there, is quite of another spirit, of a more excellent and heroic temper than the rest of the world, 
and cannot but infinitely disdain all mean and unworthy things, will not entertain any low or base thoughts which might disparage his high and noble pretensions. Love is the greatest and most excellent thing we are masters of, and therefore it is folly and baseness to bestow it unworthily. It is indeed the only thing we can call our own. Other things may be taken from us by violence, but none can ravish our love. If anything else be counted ours by giving our love, we give all, so far as we make over our hearts and wills by which we possess our other enjoyments. It is not possible to refuse him anything to whom by love we have given ourselves, nay, since it is the privilege of gifts to receive their value from the mind of the giver, and not to be measured by the event, but by the desire. He who loveth may, in some case, be said not only to bestow all that he hath, but all things else which may make the beloved person happy, since he doth heartily wish them, and would really give them, if they were in his power, in which sense it is that one makes to say, That divine love doth in a manner give God unto himself, by the complacency it takes in the happiness and perfection of his nature. But though this may seem too strained an expression, certainly love is the worthiest present we can offer unto God, and it is extremely debased when we bestow it another way. When this affection is misplaced, it doth often vent itself in such expressions as point at its genuine and proper object and insinuate where it ought to be placed. The flattering and blasphemous terms of adoration wherein men do sometimes express their passion are the language of that affection which was made and designed for God. As he who is accustomed to speak to some great person doth perhaps unawares accost another with those titles he was wont to give him. But certainly that passion which accounteth its object a deity ought to be bestowed on him who really is so. Those unlimited submissions which would debase the soul if directed to any other will exalt and ennoble it when placed here. Those chains and cords of love are infinitely more glorious than liberty itself. This slavery is more noble than all the empires in the world. Again, as divine love doth advance and elevate the soul, so it is that alone which can make it happy. The highest and most ravishing pleasures, the most solid and substantial delights that human nature is capable of, are those which arise from the endearments of a well-placed and successful affection. That which embitters love and makes it ordinarily a very troublesome and hurtful passion is the placing it on those who have not worth enough to deserve it, or affection and gratitude to requite it, or whose absence may deprive us of the pleasure of their converse, or their miseries occasion our trouble. To all these evils are they exposed, whose chief and supreme affection is placed on creatures like themselves, but the love of God delivers us from them all. First, I say love must needs be miserable and full of trouble and disquietude when there is not worth and excellency enough in the object to answer the vastness of its capacity. So eager and violent a passion cannot but fret and torment the spirit when it finds not wherewith to satisfy its cravings, and indeed so large and unbounded in its nature that it must be extremely pinched and straitened when confined to any creature. Nothing below an infinite good can afford it room to stretch itself and exert its vigor and activity. What is a little skin-deep beauty or some small degrees of goodness 
to match or satisfy a passion which was made for God, designed to embrace an infinite good. No wonder lovers do so hardly suffer any rival, and do not desire that others should approve their passions by imitating it. They know the scantiness and narrowness of the good which they love, that it cannot suffice to, being in effect too little for one. Hence love, which is as strong as death, occasioneth jealousy which is as cruel as the grave, the coals whereof are coals of fire which hath a most violent flame. But divine love hath no mixture of this gall. When once the soul is fixed on that supreme and all-sufficient good, it finds no much perfection in goodness, as doth not only answer and satisfy its affection, but master and overpower it too. It finds all its love to be too faint and languid for such a noble object, and is only sorry that it can command no more. It wisheth for the flames of a seraph, and longs for the time when it shall be wholly melted and dissolved into love, and because it can do so little itself, it desires the assistance of the whole creation, that angels and men would conquer with it the admiration and love of those infinite perfections. Again, love is accompanied with trouble when it misseth a suitable return of affection. Love is the most valuable thing we can bestow, and by giving it we do in effect give all that we have, and therefore it must needs be afflicting to find so great a gift despised that the present which one hath made of his whole heart cannot prevail to obtain any return. Perfect love is a kind of self-dereliction, a wandering out of ourselves. It is a kind of voluntary death, wherein the lover dies to himself and all his own interests, nor thinking of them, nor caring for them any more, and minding nothing but how he may please and gratify the party whom he loves. Thus he is quite undone, unless he meets with reciprocal affection. He neglects himself, and the other hath no regard to him. But if he be beloved, he is revived, as it were, and liveth in the soul in care of the person whom he loves. And now he begins to mind his own concernments, not so much because they are his, as because the beloved is pleased to own an interest in them. He becomes dear unto himself, because he is so unto the other. But why should I enlarge in so known a matter? Nothing can be more clear than that the happiness of love depends on the return it meets with, and herein the divine lover hath unspeakably the advantage, having placed his affection on him whose nature is love, whose goodness is as infinite as his being, whose mercy prevented us when we were his enemies, therefore cannot choose but embrace us when we are become his friends. It is utterly impossible that God should deny his love to a soul wholly devoted to him, and which desires nothing so much as to serve and please him. He cannot disdain his own image, nor the heart in which it is engraven. Love is all the tribute which we can pay him, and it is the sacrifice which he will not despise. Another thing which disturbs the pleasure of love and renders it a miserable and unquiet passion is absence and separation from those we love. It is not without a sensible affliction that friends do part, though for some little time. It is sad to be deprived of that society which is so delightful. Our life becomes tedious, being spent in an impatient expectation of the happy hour wherein we may meet again. But if death has made the separation, as some time or other it must, this occasions a grief scarce to be paralleled by all the misfortunes of human life, and wherein we may pay dear enough for the comforts of our friendship. But oh, how happy are those who have placed their love on him who can never be absent from them.
they need but open their eyes and they shall everywhere behold the traces of his presence and glory and converse with him whom their soul loveth and this makes the darkest prison or wildest desert not only supportable but delightful to them in fine a lover is miserable if the person whom he loveth be so they who have made an exchange of hearts by love get thereby an interest in one another's happiness and misery and this makes love a troublesome passion when placed on earth the most fortunate person hath grief enough to mar the tranquillity of his friend and it is hard to hold out when we are attacked on all hands and suffer not only in our own person but in another's but if god were the object of our love we should share in an infinite happiness without any mixture or possibility of diminution we should rejoice to behold the glory of god and receive comfort and pleasure from all the praises wherewith men and angels do extol him it should delight us beyond all expression to consider that the beloved of our souls is infinitely happy in himself and that all his enemies cannot shake or unsettle his throne that our god is in the heavens and doth whatever he pleaseth behold on what sure foundation his happiness is built whose soul is possessed with divine love whose will is transformed into the will of god and whose great desire is that his maker should be pleased oh the peace the rest the satisfaction that attendeth such a temper of mind what an infinite pleasure must it needs be thus as it were, to lose ourselves in him and be swallowed up in the overcoming sense of his goodness, to offer ourselves a living sacrifice, always ascending unto him in flames of love. Never doth a soul know what solid joy and substantial pleasure is, till once being weary of itself, it renounce all propriety, give itself up unto the author of its being, and feel itself become a hallowed and devoted thing, and can say from an inward sense and feeling, my beloved is mine i account all his interests mine own and i am his i am content to be anything for him and care not for myself but that i may serve him a person moulded into this temper would find pleasure in all the dispensations of providence temporal enjoyments would have another relish when he should taste the divine goodness in them and consider them as tokens of love sent by his dearest lord and maker and chastisements, though they be not joyous but grievous, would hereby lose their sting, the rod as well as the staff would comfort him. He would snatch a kiss from the hand that was smiting him and gather sweetness from that severity. Nay, he would rejoice that though God did not the will of such a worthless and foolish creature as himself, yet he did his own will and accomplished his own designs, which are infinitely more holy and wise the exercises of religion which to others are insipid and tedious do yield the highest pleasures and delight to souls possessed with divine love they rejoice when they are called to go up to the house of the lord that they may see his power and his glory as they have formerly seen it in the sanctuary they never think themselves so happy as when having retired from the world and gotten free from the noise and hurry of affairs and silenced all their clamorous passions those troublesome guests within they have placed themselves in the presence of God and entertain fellowship and communion with him. They delight to adore his perfections and recount his favors and to protest their affection to him and tell him a thousand times that they love him, to lay their troubles or wants before him and disburden their hearts in his bosom. 
Repentance itself is a delightful exercise when it floweth from the principle of love. There is a secret sweetness which accompanieth those tears of remorse whose meltings and relentings of a soul returning unto God and lamenting its former unkindness. The severities of a holy life and that constant watch which we are obliged to keep over our hearts and ways are very troublesome to those who are only ruled and acted by an external law and have no law in their minds inclining them to the performance of their duty. But where divine love possesseth the soul, it stands as sentinel to keep out everything that may offend the beloved and doth disdainfully repulse those temptations which assault it. It complieth cheerfully, not only with explicit commands, but with the most secret notices of the beloved's pleasure, and is ingenious in discovering what will be most grateful and acceptable unto him. It makes mortification and self-denial change their harsh and dreadful names and become easy, sweet, and delightful things. But I find this part of my letter swell bigger than I designed. Indeed, who would not be tempted to dwell on so pleasant a theme? I shall endeavor to compensate it by brevity in the other points. The next branch of the divine life is a universal charity and love. The excellency of this grace will be easily acknowledged, for what can be more noble and generous than a heart enlarged to embrace the whole world, whose wishes and designs are leveled at the good and welfare of the universe? which considereth every man's interest as its own. He who loveth his neighbor as himself can never entertain any base or injurious thought or be wanting in expressions of bounty. He had rather suffer a thousand wrongs than be guilty of one, and never accounts himself happy but when some one or other hath been benefited by him. The malice or ingratitude of men is not able to resist his love. He overlooks their injuries, and pities their folly, and overcomes their evil with good, and never designs any other revenge against his most bitter and malicious enemies than to put all objections he can upon them, whether they will or not. Is it any wonder that such a person be reverenced and admired and accounted the darling of mankind? This inward goodness and benignity of spirit reflects a certain sweetness and serenity upon the very countenance, and makes it amiable and lovely. It inspireth the soul with a holy resolution and courage, and makes it capable of enterprising and effecting the highest things. Those heroic actions, which we are wont to read with admiration, have for the most part been the effects of the love of one's country or of particular friendships, and certainly a more extensive and universal affection must be much more powerful and efficacious. Again, as charity flows from a noble and excellent temper, so it is accompanied with the greatest satisfaction and pleasure. It delights the soul to feel itself thus enlarged, and to be delivered from those disquieting as well as deformed passions, malice, hatred, and envy, and become gentle, sweet, benign. Had I my choice of all things that might tend to my present felicity, I would pitch upon this, to have my heart possessed with the greatest kindness and affection towards all men in the world. I am sure this would make me partake in all the happiness of others. Their inward endowments and outward prosperity, everything that did benefit and advantage them, would afford me comfort and pleasure. And though I should frequently meet with occasions of grief and compassion, yet there is a sweetness in commiseration, which makes it infinitely more desirable than a stupid insensibility. 
and the consideration of that infinite goodness and wisdom which governs the world might repress any excessive trouble for particular calamities that happen in it and the hopes or possibility of men's after-happiness might moderate their sorrow for their present misfortunes certainly next to the love and enjoyment of god that ardent charity and affection wherewith blessed souls do embrace one another is justly to be reckoned as the greatest felicity of those regions above and did it universally prevail in the world it would anticipate that blessedness and make us taste of the joys of heaven upon earth that which i named as a third branch of religion was purity and you may remember i described it to consist in a contempt of sensual pleasures and resoluteness to undergo those troubles and pains we may meet with in the performance of our duty now the naming of this may suffice to recommend it as a most noble and excellent quality there is no slavery so base as that whereby a man becomes a drudge to his own lusts nor any victory so glorious as that which is obtained over them never can that person be capable of anything that is noble or worthy who is sunk in the gross and seculent pleasures of sense or bewitched with the light and airy gratifications of fancy but the religious soul is of a more sublime and divine temper it knows it was made for higher things and scorns to step aside one foot out of the ways of holiness for the obtaining any of these and this purity is accompanied with a great deal of pleasure whatsoever defiles the soul disturbs it too all impure delights have a sting in them and leave smart and trouble behind them excess and intemperance and all inordinate lusts are so much enemies to the health of the body and the interest of this present life that a little consideration might oblige any rational man to forbear them on that very score and if the religious person go higher and do not only abstain from noxious pleasures but neglect those that are innocent this is not to be looked upon as any violent and uneasy restraint but as the effect of better choice that their minds are taken up in the pursuit of more sublime and refined delights so that they cannot be concerned in these any person that is engaged in a violent and passionate affection will easily forget his ordinary gratifications will be little curious about his diet or his bodily ease or the divertisements he was wanted to delight in no wonder then if souls overpowered with divine love despise inferior pleasures and be almost ready to grudge the body its necessary attendance for the common accommodations of life judging all these impertinent to their main happiness those higher enjoyments they are pursuing as for the hardships they may meet with they rejoice in them as opportunities to exercise and testify their affection and since they are able to do so little for god they are glad of the honor to suffer for him the last branch of religion is humility and however to vulgar and carnal eyes this may appear an abject base and despicable quality yet really the soul of man is not capable of a higher and more noble endowment it is a silly ignorance that begets pride but humility arises from a nearer acquaintance with excellent things which keeps men from doting on trifles or admiring themselves because of some petty attainments noble and well-educated souls have no such high opinion of riches beauty strength and other such like advantages as to value themselves for them or despise those that want them and as for inward worth and real goodness 
the sense they have of the divine perfections makes them think very meanly of anything they have hitherto attained and be still endeavoring to surmount themselves and make near approaches to those infinite excellencies which they admire i know not what thoughts people may have of humility but i see almost every person pretending to it and shunning such expressions and actions as may make them be accounted arrogant and presumptuous so that those who are most desirous of praise will be loath to commend themselves what are those compliments and modes of civility so frequent in our ordinary converse but so many protestations of the esteem of others and the low thoughts we have of ourselves and must not that humility be a noble and excellent endowment when the very shadows of it are accounted so necessary a part of good breeding again this grace is accompanied with a great deal of happiness and tranquillity the proud and arrogant person is a trouble to all that converse with him but most of all unto himself everything is enough to vex him but scarce anything sufficient to content and please him he is ready to quarrel with anything that falls out as if he himself were such a considerable person that god almighty should do everything to gratify him and all the creatures of heaven and earth should wait upon him and obey his will the leaves of high trees do shake with every blast of wind and every breath every evil word will disquiet and torment an arrogant man but the humble person hath the advantage when he is despised that none can think more meanly of him than he doth of himself and therefore he is not troubled at the matter but can easily bear those reproaches which wound the other to the soul and withal as he is less affected with injuries so indeed he is less obnoxious unto them contention which cometh from pride betrays a man into a thousand inconveniences which those of a meek and lowly temper seldom meet with true and genuine humility begetteth both of veneration and love among all wise and discerning persons while pride defeateth its own design and deprives a man of that honour which makes him pretend to but as the chief exercises of humility are those which relate unto almighty god so these are accompanied with the greatest satisfaction and sweetness it is impossible to express the great pleasure and delight which religious persons feel in the lowest prostration of their souls before god when having a deep sense of the divine majesty and glory they sink if i may so speak to the bottom of their beings and vanish and disappear in the presence of god by a serious and affectionate acknowledgment of their own nothingness and the shortness and imperfections of their attainments when they understand the full sense and emphasis of the psalmist's exclamation lord what is man and can utter it with the same affection never did any haughty and ambitious person receive the praises and applauses of men with so much pleasure as the humble and religious do renounce them not unto us o lord not unto us but unto thy name give glory for thy mercy and for thy truth's sake thus i have spoken something of the excellencies and advantages of religion in its several branches but should be very injurious to the subject did i pretend to have given any perfect account of it let us acquaint ourselves with it and experience will teach us more than all that ever hath been spoken or written concerning it but if we may suppose the soul to be already awakened unto some longing desires after so great a blessedness it will be good to give them vent and suffer them to issue forth in some such aspirations as these a prayer 
good God, what a mighty felicity is this to which we are called. How graciously hast thou joined our duty and happiness together and prescribed that for our work, the performance whereof is a great reward. And shall such silly worms be advanced to so great a height? Wilt thou allow us to raise our eyes to thee? Wilt thou admit and accept our affection? Shall we receive the impression of thy divine excellencies by beholding and admiring them, and partake of thy infinite blessedness and glory by loving thee and rejoicing in thee? O oh, the happiness of those souls that have broken the fetters of self-love and disentangled their affection from every narrow and particular good, whose understandings are enlightened by thy Holy Spirit, and their wills enlarged to the extent of thine, who love thee above all things, and all mankind for thy sake. I am persuaded, O God, I am persuaded that I can never be happy till my carnal and corrupt affections be mortified, and the pride and vanity of my spirit be subdued, until I come seriously to despise the world, and think nothing of myself. But, O oh, when shall it once be? O oh, when wilt thou come unto me, and satisfy my soul with thy likeness, making me holy as thou art holy, even in all manner of conversation? Hast thou given me a prospect of so great a felicity, and wilt thou not bring me unto it? Hast thou excited these desires in my soul, and wilt thou not also satisfy them? O, oh, teach me to do thy will, for thou art my God. Thy spirit is good. Lead me unto the land of uprightness. Quicken me, O Lord, for thy name's sake and perfect that which concerneth me. Thy mercy, O Lord, endureth forever. Forsake not the works of thine own hands. End of part two.